When I was a wrestler at Bible College in downtown Chicago, our, own, our most interesting match took place at a maximum security prison. I mean, most of the time we wrestled other small colleges, but I think this was kind of like a ministry to the prisoners or something, and so we went to the Joliet prison. I want to show you a picture of this prison. It has since closed. It was around for a long time. Uh, and really uh, not a very pleasant place on the inside, but it's housed some pretty famous uh, inmates over the years, including uh, uh, people that were captured during the Civil War and more recently John uh, Wayne Gacy, which some of you may remember that name, but it, it was really for kind of some of the some of the worst of the worst were housed here, and I'm not sure whose idea it was, but they thought it'd be nice if these uh, college students would be allowed to come in and wrestle the prisoners. And so they escorted us in, they gave us a, an ID, and they said, if you lose it, you don't get out. And they weren't smiling about that. I think they were serious, which is why I did not appreciate when one of the other wrestlers hid my ID for just a little bit to see what would happen. We were escorted, though, into a locker area. We changed into our wrestling gears, and then we were, we were buzzed through one metal gate after another as we made our way into what seemed to be the very belly of the prison. And then we were brought into this, uh, what appeared to be a huge cage. As I was thinking about it, uh, I, I think it was like about 100 by 200 feet. I used to think of it as being a little smaller, but it was a, like this huge cage. The door was locked behind us and it extended several stories so that you could see the prisoners hanging on that cage all around, jeering us as we walked in. And then it was time for the matches to begin. I believe it was the second match that was the most memorable. The 174-pound match, our wrestler was he wasn't used to losing. He was a, a, just a solid muscle of a guy, very, very strong, very athletic. He usually won his matches, and so 174 was called out, and he made his way to the center of the match, and then, and then their wrestler showed up, walked over to the center of the match as well, and immediately when I saw the two standing opposite each other, I realized, you guys are liars. There's no way he, he weighed 174 pounds, maybe 220, 225, 250 even. He was six inches taller. He was massive. His arms were bigger than our guy. His legs were bigger. He was taller. There's just no way that they weighed the same amount. And then the ref just completely ignored that fact, which I think everybody could see. And they blew the whistle and the match started. And the very first thing that the prisoner did was he put his arm on my friend's shoulder and his other hand between his thighs. He raised him up over his head in what I think is called the fireman's carry and threw him across the mat like he was a rag doll. It was humorous. I mean, he just threw him around like he was nothing, just tossed him across the match. Needless to say, our guy did not win the match. But while I was watching, besides being a little bit entertained by the whole thing, was I was kind of mad. Uh, I was mad at the fact that, that, that they allowed this to happen, that they, they, they so deliberately deceived and lied 
And, and, you know, we were just counting on this thing being fair, and it wasn't fair. But then as I began to reflect on it, um, it occurred to me where I was. We were told literally all the prisoners that we wrestled had murdered somebody. I was, um, I was surprised that they might lie. I mean, I'm not suggesting, please don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting all prisoners were lie, but these, these is, this is not a jail. It's a maximum security prison. They're in there for doing horrendous things most, for the most part, and I probably should not be surprised that somehow when it came to a match like this, it wouldn't be fair that they would maybe lie about the weight of this individual. He was really a heavyweight. I want to raise a question here for us today, and that is, do you think that it's reasonable to expect us as Christians to live differently, that, that maybe the people should be able to look at our lives and conclude that we're Christians, that, that just like in some ways maybe the natural thing I should have expected from these prisoners was maybe a little dishonesty, is it appropriate to suggest that if someone is a Christian, that that person's faith should impact how they live their lives, or that other people should be able to look at us and say, you're a Christian. Is that a reasonable thing to expect? And if so, what might that look like? I mean, if you could agree that, that the fact that we're Christians should somehow be reflected in how we live our lives, then the question is, how, how should that be reflected? What would that look like? And that's what I want to talk about here today. But before I do, I need to summarize where we've been because it lays the foundation for what we're talking about here today. Understanding what Paul wrote in the first part of the book of Colossians, which we're going through, is essential for understanding now the application when he gets to it. And so the first week of the series, I talked about who Jesus was. And I laid out a number of qualities that he was God in the flesh, he's our sovereign creator. He's the inheritor or heir of all things. He's the one who holds everything together. He's the head of the church. He was the ruler over death. Even death submits to him. And he's the reconciler, the one through whom we're made right with God, the one who made it possible for us to be reconciled with our creator. Now, that's who Jesus is. And if you put your faith and trust in Christ, he lives inside of you. And these things are true about who he is, the one who resides with you. Then we talked about what was true about people. We talked about the fact we get a new identity. We're called saints by Paul. Set apart ones. It's a little different usage of the term than we usually think of when you think of saints. But we're God's set apart ones. And we've been given a brand new family where God is our heavenly father and we're brothers and sisters of one another. We've been given a new eternal destiny, heaven. We have been transferred, Paul writes, into a new kingdom, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, of light, the kingdom of the sun, Jesus. And we experience a brand new beginning. And then last week, Josh talked about the fact that our faith, our faith walk is really about connecting with Jesus. It's about a relationship with Jesus. It's not about rules, which a lot of people, they think that's what... The, the, the faith walk is, it's a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's, it's not about rules. It's not about mystical experiences. Some want to go from one mystical experience to another. That's how they define 
their faith walk. That's not what it's about. It's not about various philosophies of this world, and it's not about asceticism. You know, being ones who deny ourselves certain things. As Josh talked about last week, the Christian life, or the essence of it, is Jesus plus nothing. That equals everything. And when you put all those things together, then Paul begins to introduce the kind of people we should be as Christians. Because we're changed ones, because we're God set apart ones, because Jesus lives in us, and because the power of our Christian life comes from Jesus and not through our own cranking it out, because it's about a relationship with Jesus, and so we put our roots deeply in Him, there's an expectation that our lives would reflect that we're Christians. But again, what does that look like? Well, Paul uses the analogy of a death and a resurrection to help us understand. And that's kind of the starting point for us. He, he, he talks about this new life in terms of a death and resurrection. Now, of course, that's how you become a Christian, is by putting your faith in Christ who died and was buried and raised again. It's the essence of our faith. Our faith centers around one who was crucified, buried, and raised again from the dead. We believe that when you put your trust in him as the solution to the problem of your sin, that you believe that he died in your place and for the things you've done wrong, and that when he rose from the dead, it showed God accepted the payment made on your behalf, and you trust Jesus to be your savior, you experience new life. Well, Paul talks about the fact that in a similar sense, our Christian lives now are about a death and resurrection. He talks about the fact that we need to die to certain things and we need to live to certain things. That when we identified with Christ in his death, it means certain things get buried that used to be part of our lives. And when we rise again or Jesus rose again, it's a picture of this new life, this glorified life. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new is gone. And we see this picture introduced in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. So why don't you follow along as I read, where Paul says, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life. And your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your, your life, your very life is revealed to the whole world, you'll share in his glory. He's pointing to the fact that we, we died to something. We're now alive to Jesus. And in a sense, in the mind of God, we're already seated with God in heaven. This is part of the reason, by the way, I'm convinced that when you put your trust in Christ, it's a done deal. You don't have to wonder, will I lose this? Because in the mind of God, you are seated with Christ already up in heaven. And so he's saying, start thinking heavenly. Start living for that kingdom and not the kingdom of this world. But what would that look like? Well, it involves dying to certain things, and it, it means living to certain things. My takeaway here today is this. Our new life in Christ involves a death and a resurrection. And this is how we begin to think of it. Our new life in Christ involves dying to certain things and living a new life to certain things. So what are some of the things? Well, beginning in verse 5, he, he talks about the things we're to die to. He says, so put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality 
which I believe, by the way, is any sexual activity between people who are not married, at least biblically, seems to be the broadest definition. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. You might say, well, I'm not being immoral. Well, maybe you're being impure. Maybe, maybe you're not being impure, but we all struggle with lust sometimes or evil desires. He goes on to say, don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sin sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now's the time to get rid of anger. Rage, malicious behavior, which is trying to get even with people, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature with all its wicked deeds. Now, he lists a bunch of things here. I don't think he's intending here to be thorough. I don't think it's a, a definitive list. He's trying to give a picture of, of what it used to be before you were a Christian that certain things characterized your life. He starts with some moral areas, but he gets into just rage and anger and other things that were part of this life. And he says, we need to die to them and they need to die to us. He, he says both things. We die to them and they should be dead to us. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, it means that they no longer have authority over your life, or should. You're dead to them. I obviously, in my profession, uh, am exposed to death more than most. It's not a pleasant thought, but I end up going to a lot more funerals than most of you do. And, and I'm kind of used to it by now, but you know, after the ceremony, I'll stand by the casket and and there will be oftentimes a, a body there. We call it a corpse. It's got no life. And I'm very much alive, but it is not. And if somebody were to come up to that corpse and say, I said, get out of there. Get up. Get going. You could shout all you wanted. It's time to get to work. Whatever you would shout at the person, there would be no response because we recognize they're dead. In a similar sense, if you went up and tried to pinch them, unless you've seen the movie Red 2, which is quite humorous. But they poked the guy, pinched the guy, you know. There's no response. There's just no response. And so this is this idea of when you're dead to something, it's not to have a claim on you anymore. And so sin comes at you, the same temptations you used to have. You now have power and authority over those. The power of those things has been broken. We're to regard them as no longer in authority over our lives. We're dead to those things, and those things should be dead to us. And so again, Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you, and then he begins to list them. Put them to death. Dr. Geisler explains it this way. The Greek tense in this command suggests a decisive action as if Paul said, mortify it, do it now, and do it resolutely. The Greek tense here is a once-for-all acknowledgement, I'm dead to this now. All these things, I'm now dead to these things. Now, what's important to realize is that the, Christ is the, the one that made this possible. He broke the power of sin. As Paul wrote, writes in Romans 6, sin is not your master anymore. It's not. It, it makes its claims but it's, it has no authority over your life, and we as Christians need to recognize that God has broken the chains 
that tied us to sin. Geisler goes on to say, of course, God has already done it. He's defeated these things. But Christ, or but Christians are to know this, to go on living as though they are still alive to sin when in actuality they are not. It, it just doesn't make sense. They're not to go on living that way. As if these things are still supposed to be part of our lives. And I've known some that when they finally got this, it finally broke the chain of a lot of things that they were giving themselves to because they realized for the first time in their life, I don't have to do this. We think, well, I have to do this. I have to commit this sin. I can't say no. No, you can. I think we're going to get to heaven and realize that the very resurrection power, what raised Christ from the dead is at work within us. We have the ability to say, I'm dead to you. And it has to flee. But then Paul talks about the positive side of things. It begins by talking about this new nature in verse 10. He says, but put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. He says to put on this new nature. The terminology he uses is that of like a garment. This is what you wear now. He's about to list some things, but he's talking about this new life. You, you now are clothed with something different, which sometimes our clothing matters. I think we kind of acknowledge this. When I put on a suit, I feel different. I, I just feel like I'm a, kind of a little bit different person. I'm wearing that suit, you know, you're walking around. Or you think of a graduation garment, you know, at some point as you're wearing that, you think, I I'm a graduate now. You walk around with just a different spirit of things because I'm a graduate now. And we're to put on something new, this new life. Now, I need to point out that it made the point that it's about Christ. Christ is all that matters and he lives in us all. We have to understand that our ability to do any of the things we're talking about, both to say no to some things and to say yes to other things, is hinging on Christ who lives in us. It's not our own power. Christ, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, lives inside of you, giving you the ability to do it. He lives in us. So what would this new life look like? Well, in verse 12, on the positive side, it says, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, the set-apart ones, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect unity. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Now, when we got to the dying part, a lot of the characteristics had to do with just moral things and, and various sins that get us in terms of lusts or whatever. But then he went on to some sins that relate to people. He talked about getting, not being angry with people and... and you know, and, and having a heart of forgiveness or whatever. On this side, it's all about relationships practically. I find that quite interesting that, that the one side seems like avoid certain moral sins, but when you get to the positive side, almost every one of these has to do with your relationships with other people. You know, he says, put on tender-hearted mercy, kindness, 
humility, gentleness, and patience, make allowance for each other's faults, forgiving each other. I've said many times before, I'm gonna say it again, that I'm convinced that spiritual maturity is related to how you treat others more than it is on how long you've been a Christian or how much of the Bible you know. We tend to measure spiritual maturity based on those things, how long you've been a Christian or how well you know the Bible. It's great to know the Bible, but when it comes to how our faith is to be fleshed out, it has to do with how you treat other people. Makes a huge difference. The reality of our faith is revealed there. I remember a time when um, I was living with a bunch of guys that we all went to the same church and we were all in the habit of actually reading our Bibles every day and there were several of us. One day, one of the guys was up in the attic for about two hours. He was reading his Bible, he was praying. And then he came downstairs and immediately managed to get into an argument with one of his roommates. And his roommate, it's part of this argument the guy used against the roommate as he said, well, listen, I just spent two hours up in the attic with God, reading my Bible and praying. He was implying, therefore, I'm right. I'm spiritual. You're wrong. The guy's response was, I think you need to go back up there. I agreed. If you spend two hours with God and you're reading your Bible and praying and you come down and it doesn't, you don't have a soft heart toward other people, patience and kindness and a heart to forgive and, and to love other people. This is how this thing is fleshed out. He'll go on to say even loving those who are outside the faith. That's the kind of people we are. And of course, Jesus said this too. He said, by this will everyone know you're my disciples by your love for one another. So what do we do with this? Well, I think the application changes depending on where you are. Almost every week I put out a challenge here that I believe every week there are some of you here today that have not yet put your trust in Jesus to be your savior. And for some of you, that's, that's the starting point. To come to a point where you acknowledge that you've sinned against God and that you can't fix it. We can't clean ourselves up enough to merit or earn eternal life, we can't do it. It's not about rituals, it's not about church attendance. We can't fix the fact we're sinners. We need a savior and God sent his son Jesus for that reason. God charged the sin of the world against Jesus. God declared him guilty so that God could declare you not guilty and the way you receive this forgiveness and become a child of God is through faith alone, trust making Jesus Christ the object of your trust. So you come to a point where you say, I know I'm a sinner, I can't fix it. I wanna put my trust today in Jesus. I, I believe you, God, concerning your son that, that he made the provision for me. I'm taking the provision you've made for me. Receive Jesus as my savior. It's really as simple as that. If you're already a Christian here, I'm, I'm not suggesting you look at this list as a, it's not to be a bunch of, do's and don'ts. Josh talked about that last week. I don't think that's Paul's intention. I think he's trying to paint a picture. I think we should use the list to say, what, you know, is my life show these things, generally speaking? But then I think the remedy, the remedy is not as much to focus on even that thing, but to focus on Christ. It's what Josh talked about last week. 
It's about the power of the risen Christ who lives in you, learning, because really those things are just the fruit of this relationship with God. You can tell, in a sense, how someone's doing spiritually by the fruit of their life. That's what Jesus said, a tree's known by its fruit. And so the things we do, the good and the bad, they just are like fruit. They just reveal what's in here. But to fix what's in here needs a connection with our our Savior, Jesus. And this is why Paul spent so much time laying out who Jesus really was so that you have a full assurance he's able to help you. This is not a solo act, the Christian life, where you crank it out on your own. It's where we learn to rely on Christ. He begins to change us. So we come to a point where we say like Paul, for me to live is Christ. You know, it's, it's not me living, but it's the power of Christ in me. And that's where people begin to see a supernatural difference in the way we live our lives. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your son Jesus that he made it possible for us to not only be forgiven of our sin, but to live differently, Lord. And And we want to be ones who live differently. We recognize the current of this world drags us in various directions. And the current of this world wants to impose a certain morality on us and certain values upon us. And yet, O Lord, you've called us as set-apart ones, saints, ones whose lives need to reflect the fact that you are our Savior, you are our God, you are our stronghold. We want to walk in step with you because... When we walk in the spirit, we do not carry out the desires of the flesh. And so help us to walk in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.